and you're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome today Casey Michelle. He is the author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy, and works on the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative. Welcome, Casey. Thanks so much, Alexander. It's great to be here. Uh, Casey, can you tell me about the inspiration for your project, this book, your debut, American Kleptocracy? I know a lot of the origin is connected with your work with the Kleptocracy Initiative. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, the uh, uh, origin of this book uh, really can be traced back to some work I was doing with the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative three or four years ago uh, when they proposed an idea that I hadn't frankly seen much out there uh, about, at least as it pertains to kind of a cohesive examination. Uh, and that specific topic they wanted me to do uh, some research on was the U.S.'s transformation over the past 10, 15, 20 years, you could extend that back even longer if you want, into the world's greatest uh, offshore and financial secrecy haven. That is to say, how the U.S. became the largest and most substantial player within the broader international transnational world of offshore finance, illicit finance, and financial secrecy, the kinds of terms and terminologies that we have grown to understand as kleptocracy itself. Uh, they wanted me to research how it is that the U.S. came to uh, uh, find itself in this position, what specific um, uh, industries and actors and factors and policy decisions or policy loopholes in certain cases took place that allowed the U.S. to become this entity in the offshoring world, really an entity unto itself at this point. Uh, and that allowed me to travel all over the country and interview a number of political figures, a number of offshoring experts, a number of those who are profiting along the way from these mechanisms, again, of offshoring and of financial secrecy, and especially of transforming all of, or at least so much of the world's dirty money into perfectly clean, perfectly legitimate assets, so much of it taking place right here in the U.S. So all that is to say, I very much have my colleagues at the Hudson Institute Kleptocracy Initiative to thank for helping push me down this path of examining how it is that my home country, born and raised right here in the U.S., has transformed into the world's biggest offshore haven. Over the course of the Trump administration, uh, Norm Ornstein and a number of leading scholars of American government have called this regime, the outgoing presidency of Donald Trump, a kleptocratic administration. Now, the subtitle of your book is How the United States Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And I want to ask you, based on your investigation, how much of the Trump administration was achieving the culmination of that money laundering scheme? Yeah, that's a great question, Alexander. And I think the characterization of the current administration as kleptocratic or certainly the most uh, kleptocracy-friendly regime uh, that we have uh, seen not only in recent years, but frankly, ever since the broader phenomenon of transnational money laundering, kleptocracy, as we've come to know, really came to roost, uh, uh, came home to roost. Uh, there, there hasn't been anything of magnitude of the scale of policies implemented by the administration. Certainly uh, no singular uh, person in the White House has encapsulated so many of these trends and trajectories and realities 
as Donald Trump himself. You know, we have to think back to the pre-presidency days of Donald Trump. He wasn't just a reality TV show star. He wasn't just somebody blustering on about, you know, former President Obama's birth certificate. Uh, he made so much of his money, obviously, in the real estate sector and specifically in the luxury real estate sector. That is to say, acting as a vendor of and a salesman of luxury real estate properties, primarily here in the U.S., to all and sundry who would want any piece of the American luxury real estate pie. You know, the, the best estimate we have is that uh, Trump himself uh, oversaw operations through the Trump organization uh, selling billions of dollars, billions with a B of dollars to clients, uh, to partners who fit traditional money laundering profiles, who fit the traditional understanding of what a money laundering operation looks like. And if we back up even further, or we take a 10,000 foot view, when we're discussing modern kleptocracy, when we're discussing modern elements of and networks of this international money laundering, what we generally see is you have elites and oligarchic castes and classes in the developing world in places like the post-Soviet region and post-colonial Africa, in certain parts of South and Southeast Asia that go through these mechanisms of state capture. They capture the political parties, they become the ruling regimes, and they're able to stick their hands in all kinds of financial pies, whether it's the national treasury they begin looting, whether it is simply just controlling the means of taxation, getting their hands on that much more illicit money, dirty money. We have seen this time and again, whether it's in Russia and Ukraine, whether it's in Malaysia, whether it's in Sri Lanka, whether it's in Angola, uh, whether it's in Mexico, you know, time and again, this phenomenon takes place. The problem that these figures then have is that everybody knows, everybody can see and everybody can understand that their monies, that their net worth is ill-gotten. It is stolen, it is looted. And what they require and what they need are the means of laundering this money, the means of laundering this largesse that they have looted from the national population, from treasuries, from uh, the education budget, from contracts, what have you. And it just so happens that as the book will detail, there are few means finer of laundering that money than American real estate and especially American luxury real estate. And lo and behold, what figure uh, emerged from the morass of the American luxury real estate industry uh, more than anyone else over the last 20 years? Uh, that's Donald Trump, all of which is to say Donald Trump played a very key role in acting as a supplier of these kinds of kleptocratic tools that provided all the financial secrets all the anonymity and all the laundering services that these foreign figures needed, whether again, they're from Russia and Ukraine, whether they're from China, whether they're from Azerbaijan, whether they're from Mexico, what have you, his properties and his organization was the perfect, the perfect money laundering vehicle time and again for so many of these figures. And unfortunately, that ethos that uh, Trump refined as a businessman has continued full sail and whole cloth uh, while he's been in the White House. It has been just one dispiriting development after another to see this man uh, at the tiller of the American anti-kleptocracy or anti-corruption uh, efforts really demolish, really kneecap American anti-corruption and anti-kleptocracy efforts. Uh, um, you know, it's been an, unlike any administration we've seen prior, and it certainly has been unlike any president in this country's history.
Your book sounds like it will be groundbreaking in making the reveal. Um, these revelations have not been unnoticed or unheeded by a coalition of concerned citizens and some lawyers and in the judiciary to an extent. However, when you take a case like the Trump Hotel in D.C. and understand the potential for kleptocratic um, corruption in, in that hotel and the fact that the emoluments clause of the Constitution ultimately, while it exists textually, was fundamentally not applied. It was ignored. Um, there's a whole lot of kleptocratic activity that may not be revealed yet. But I want to ask this to you in two parts. What do we know about the kleptocracy of the Trump Hotel in D.C., for instance, the old post office that was bought out by Trump that he's now attempting to sell. What do we know about various elements of kleptocracy within the administration, both Trump and his allies? And what do we not know that either your book will reveal or investigative reporting ought to reveal in the coming months and years? Those are both great questions, uh, Alex. So I think to take the the first one, um, you're exactly right. The Emoluments Clause has proved impotent in the face of uh, an administration and certainly in the face of a president who pays it no mind, who pays it no heed, and doesn't even bother to do the basic lip service to the distinction of and distinguishment uh, of um, uh, the presidency and any kind of undue influence uh, therein. You know, the manifestations that we've seen of this kind of kleptocratic nexus of uh, dirty money and utilizing that dirty money to influence um, American policy therein, and especially American anti-corruption and anti-kleptocracy policy therein, uh, you know, at the Trump Hotel in D.C., and by no means limited to that property itself, but, you know, extended to all Trump organization properties uh, uh, across the country as well as across the world, frankly. It is all too easy for a foreign kleptocrat, for a foreign oligarch, for a foreign official who is as steeped in corruption as anyone to spy an opportunity directly into President Trump's good graces. And all that entails is uh, buying up uh, or renting out a number of Trump hotel uh, rooms or condos or conference spaces. Uh, we've seen that manifestation of that most clearly in uh, D.C. itself, uh, in, in the Trump Hotel in D.C. itself. Uh, but you also see that in terms of, uh, again, foreign kleptocrats, foreign oligarchs, those saturated in dirty money elsewhere, outright partnering with the Trump Organization itself to construct brand new Trump Organization buildings. And this is taking place as uh, I and a number of other uh, investigative journalists have detailed, not just in the U.S., but in places that are mired absolutely mired in corruption, places like Indonesia, places like the Philippines, as some fantastic reporting has seen. There, uh, Obviously, there were uh, uh, discussions ongoing pertaining to potential Trump projects in places like uh, Russia and Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, all overseen by brutal kleptocratic regimes. But all that is to say, there were a number of avenues open to any foreign figure saturated again in the kind of dirty money that we detailed earlier, who could go out of their way to influence a sitting American 
president in a way, again, that has never been seen in this country's history. And that, frankly, I'm sure the, the founders and framers of the American Constitution could never have anticipated. Now, to the second question, what kinds of elements have we seen taking advantage of this? You know, it's the exact same elements that you would probably expect. It's the oligarchs. It's those who are already enmeshed in power. It's those that are running state-friendly companies or corporations or oil and gas companies in places like Russia and Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan who have also emerged out of notoriously corrupt uh, uh, industries and regimes themselves. I think it is so very telling that one of the, um, how would I say this, flashiest or most uh, eye-catching uh, figures who showed up in the Trump Hotel in D.C. was a former Nigerian official, a gentleman named Atiku Abubakar, who I'm sure many Americans aren't familiar with. He is the former vice president of Nigeria, and he was an opposition candidate in the presidential elections um, uh, a year or two ago. Uh, but what most people uh, don't realize is that Mr. Abubakar was one of the primary case studies in the most seminal Senate-led investigation into foreign dirty money worming its way and working its way into the U.S. This was back in 2010. The Senate Permanent uh, Subcommittee on Investigations launched a, a, a really unprecedented uh, investigation and examination of how foreign corrupt figures were laundering their money in the U.S. Abu Bakr was one of four figures that they identified and highlighted for all of his millions and millions and millions of dollars in corruption, again, coming to the U.S for his laundering needs, all of a sudden, Trump is elected president in 2016, and a year or two later, who else do we see show up at the Trump D.C. hotel itself? Lo and behold, there's Mr. Abu Bakr back in the U.S., uh, uh, putting his money back into Trump properties. We don't know the details of any meetings he or the Trump administration may have had, but there is so much smoke in that situation, you could choke on it. You can see exactly what he is attempting to do which gets me to the kind of uh, uh, you know uh, future-facing question within that, and the questions that I still have, and the questions that the book uh, will be pointing to uh, in itself is that there are in the U.S. so very many means of laundering foreign monies, of hiding your illicit and ill-gotten gains. Uh, um, of, looting, of, of laundering it and then of stashing it somewhere in the U.S. or using those laundered proceeds elsewhere in the U.S., whether it's for reinvestment elsewhere, whether it's to expand illicit operations elsewhere, or whether, as we've seen many times, it's to influence a sitting American president. There are just so, so very many questions that we still have pertaining to who exactly was behind the anonymous shell companies, the anonymous trusts, the anonymous real estate investments, the anonymous hedge fund uh, vehicles, and the anonymous uh, uh, LLC donations that we have seen pop up any number of times over the last few years. Frankly, uh, we have, we've only scratched the surface of how influence peddling and the spread of these corporatic networks and nexuses in the U.S. under the Trump administration affected American policy. We're only just beginning to learn. My book is an attempt at presenting a very cohesive story of how we got here, how the U.S. itself got to this point in 2016, how Trump utilized those previous pro-clocracy and kleptocratic networks to launch himself into the presidency and how, as president, he took an absolute sledgehammer to the U.S.'s reputation as an anti-corruption bastion, as an anti-corruption leader. We are going to be dealing with this mess, this cleanup 
for years and years to come. This is what I'm hoping to accomplish in the book. Trump is no aberration. He was the logical outcome of these kleptocratic developments, these developments pertaining to financial anonymity and offshoring that we saw take root in the U.S. 30, 35 years ago and only develop and only continue to expand until Trump was launched to the White House a few years ago. And we have a lot a lot of work ahead of us if we want to prevent another figure like Trump from emerging in the future. Not only do you want to prevent that from occurring, but the infrastructure that Trump has set up personally and perhaps even within the U.S. government to advance the corrupt oligarchic interests may exist even with him not winning re-election, not serving a second term. So that's the question. If Corruption plus oligarchy equals kleptocracy, or as Norm would say, cacistocracy, then we are left not knowing to what extent the kleptocratic interests are going to be furthered, even while Trump is not in office. And I'm wondering if you can shed light on that, because before Trump, we had oligarchy. Every, we, we know that. Now we have a different element of kleptocracy. Um, knowing that the that the venom in the system is is possibly still alive even with Trump out of office how do we how does Biden deal with that oh look the, the venom is absolutely still alive just because Trump is going to be leaving the white house soon he all of his sycophants all of his lackeys and all those looking to take advantage and who took full advantage of him as president, as of him as this, again, uh, predating the presidency, this, this uh, luxury real estate developer who is saturated in all kinds of dirty money. They have every reason to think that come four years from now or eight years from now, they can launch him or somebody like him, whether it's Trump Jr., whether it's Ivanka, whomever it might be, back into the White House and continue this project. Fear is that the project is ongoing. In other words, Trump could be profiting on decisions made during his term, even as Biden is president. Yes. So yes, in that sense, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. And I think in that sense, it helps to uh, take a look at some of the developments we saw uh, uh, regarding America's anti-corruption regime and broader anti-kleptocracy regime under Trump. So for instance, one of Trump's very first uh, moves as president. This was the first week of February back in 2017. If any of us can remember that uh, that long ago, Trump signed uh, what was called a Congressional Review Act, CRA, which is a little used uh, legislative mechanism to roll back that allows the administration to roll back any regulations that the preceding administration had passed in their final six months. That is to say, it allowed Trump to roll back any uh, Obama era regulations that Obama, the Obama administration had passed in the six months preceding Trump. And one of those key regulations that the administration under Obama had passed was increased transparency in the oil and gas sector as it pertains to foreign bribes. That is to say, it required American oil and gas uh, companies and any company that's listed on the American Stock Exchange uh, to detail foreign payments to foreign officials. Uh, the logic behind that is uh, it's effectively sunlight is the best disinfectant. If these companies are forced to disclose all payments to foreign government officials, then they will also have to disclose any bribes they may have to pay. Lo and behold, uh, well, two things. One, they're, they're exactly right. The Obama administration is exactly right. And we've seen similar legislation since in places like Canada and Norway and the EU. I mean, it was one of the most forward thinking pieces of regulation the U.S., frankly, had ever uh, introduced into kind of the broader uh, legislative framework. 
uh, and legalistic framework. Trump comes in. One of the very first things he does is uh, uh, put the complete brakes on that and begin trying to repeal that as he begins to try to um, pull the U.S. back from other commitments as it pertains to transparency in the oil and gas sector. And here we are four years later, and now American oil and gas firms don't have to disclose I mean, effectively anything or at least anything worthwhile as it pertains to uh, foreign payments uh, abroad. So what we have now is you have all these obviously oil and gas major um, uh, uh, companies that have uh, a wide open door to uh, bribe or to uh, unduly influence foreign officials elsewhere. We obviously know how cozy the oil and gas sector in the U.S. is with the Trump administration. And all of a sudden you see these kind of circles developing, or at least network developing, where you have, because the Trump administration rolled back these requirements, oil and gas companies can now go grease the palms of more corrupt officials elsewhere. The corrupt officials that all of a sudden have that much more largesse to uh, look to and to use that they can spend as they see fit. And unfortunately, so many of these financial uh, uh, anonymity vehicles in the U.S. still remain that allow them to continue to influence a potential administration in the future, a Trump or Trump Jr. or Ivanka administration. And you see these cycles developing. Now, right. Right. But for the grace of God, we'll have a new administration uh, coming in that appears to understand Full well the threats and concerns uh, of a very concerning development in this world of autocracy. But again, there's so much work ahead of them. And as you as you mentioned just a moment ago, Alex, there's every reason to think that this poison in the well is going to uh, remain for years to come. Is it the case that Hunter's involvement with geopolitical matters, uh, even if not unethical or certainly illicit, damaged Biden's attempt and will damage his attempts in these next months to restore credibility. Um, That is to say that had it not been for the pandemic and the devastatingly incompetent response by the Trump administration to the pandemic, it's not clear that Americans vote on the basis of political corruption. You recall In the early 2000s, the Ney and Abramoff scandals, which did seem to resonate, Mm -hmm. uh, Mark Foley, these were American scandals. They weren't outsourced. It's not clear to me that the American people realize just how much they're being robbed by the system you described that you're going to explicate in your book. Uh, And whether or not the question as to whether Biden was the best spokesperson for the restoration of good foreign policy, good government remains to be seen, but it must be concerning to you. And maybe you have some parting words as an antidote to the media as to why the American people did not seem to care in 2016 and in 2020 Um, the focus really was on restoring public health. And it's not clear that the kind of corruption you describe taking place during the Trump presidency or prior to his presidency really does concern Americans enough to vote with that centrally in mind. 
Yeah, Alex, that's a, uh, that's a great question. And I certainly think, uh, you know, the kind of cop-out answer is that it depends on the election or it depends on the electorate. As you just mentioned in 2020, there were, uh, unfortunately, so many other pressing issues at play, whether it was the, the pandemic, whether it was the racial justice protest movements, um, whether it was uh, Trump's general incompetence in and of itself and the recession that has uh, uh, resulted. I, I, I think that, uh, again, there were any number of mitigating factors that prevented political corruption from rising to the fore as the driving force of the um, uh, election and of, and of turnout, which is in a certain sense unfortunate because as we saw with Trump himself, you know, he went to absolutely unprecedented lengths to reach out to corrupt foreign partners to peddle this so-called dirt on his primary uh, electoral opponent, uh, at the center of which was a, a, an insanely corrupt Ukrainian uh, oligarch who was uh, uh, funding and pulling the strings on this broader operation to smear Biden and uh, remove his chances uh, at the presidency. Now, obviously, that backfired on Trump, on the oligarch himself, Dmitry Fertosh, and the entire network surrounding uh, him and, uh, and Giuliani. Uh, but that isn't to say that we didn't see more manifestations of it in late 2020. I know you just mentioned Hunter Biden, and I think Hunter's uh, behavior, I think his decisions, and I think his role in these broader corrupt networks have been absolutely reprehensible. And I think uh, President-elect Biden is now uh, actually, and perhaps um, uh, unexpectedly, in a prime position to act as the uh, 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 you know, kind of a, a locus point or, or focal point for why uh, America needs these kinds of deep-seated reforms as it pertains to uh, influence peddling, as it pertains to dirty money, as it pertains to foreign corrupt entanglements. Uh, I think he may even feel that much more pressure to lead on this issue because of the decisions that Hunter Biden uh, took and because of the decisions that his uh, son uh, took in places like Ukraine and, uh, and China. Um, I also think that President-elect Biden is in a key position to lead on this and may feel increased pressure on this because he's the first uh, American president to come from this great state of Delaware, which, as listeners may be aware, and as they can read all about in my forthcoming book, Delaware is the offshore center par excellence here in the U.S. and has been an inspiration time and again to any number of other states and jurisdictions elsewhere as it pertains to refining these kleptocratic mechanisms, whether it's anonymous shell companies, whether it's trust, uh, and whether it's especially lobbying and, and, and pushing to prevent reforms, much, much needed reforms. You know, nobody thinks about Delaware. Nobody has any idea what goes on in that state, except that it is this real and through and through haven of financial secrecy, offshoring in the U.S., and at the end of the day, American kleptocracy. Do you agree with the premise that Americans care less about internationally fashioned corruption than domestic corruption? Uh, yes, I, I would say in general that would, uh, that would be true. I don't think that that is necessarily atypical. I would imagine that Canadians care more about domestic corruption uh, as opposed to uh, international corruption, the same for Ugandans, the same for Australians, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Even, even though in the case of, of international corruption, we're talking about American officials holding hostage um, your wealth, your country, and in some cases, um, robbing you of resources, it, it would seem that the reverse might 
be more logically true. That the, the fact that in cases of international corruption where it's proven that you are abandoning your country, that that would actually that would garner more concern. Yeah, and, and I think one thing worth keeping in mind, as we've seen most especially under the Trump administration, under Trump as president, in the last four years is what we have increasingly is the blurring of lines between domestic and international corruption. You know, that's why I said at the beginning that kleptocracy in its modern construct it is not necessarily something that takes place in a single jurisdiction or in a single state or even in a single country. It is cross-border. It is transnational. And as I say in the introduction, it takes two to tango. You have to have those who are enmeshed in dirty money, those who are rolling around in it, those who need a means of laundering it. And then you have to have those who provide the laundering services. And as we've seen time and again in the U.S., there are any number of industries, jurisdictions, uh, actors, and policies that allow those laundering services to proceed full pace and full steam ahead with none of us, any of the wiser, while all all of our pockets are being picked clean, whether it's by American politicians, whether it's by corrupt foreign actors abroad who are tilting American policy to their favor. We have an increasing blurring of the lines between this international and domestic corruption. And frankly, at the end of the day, that's what leads us to the kleptocratic situation we are still struggling with and will still be struggling with far long, far after Trump is out of the White House. Um, this is going to be a project that we will be dealing with for years and years to come. Casey Michelle, author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, and you can find it in bookstores this October, if not previews of it sooner. As he says, find out how the U.S. not only created the world's greatest money laundering scheme, but how its transformation into an offshore haven has affected everything around us. Casey, thank you for your insight today. Oh, Dan, thanks so much for having me.